0: I've told you this before, and I'm sure I'll tell it to you again, but I gave my life to the Lord on the night of my 18th birthday. Um, Many of you know the story, but I met Tria, who is now my wife. She was not my wife at the time. We're not a part of the LDS church. Um, But I met Tria when she was 16 and I was 17, and I wasn't a Christian, but she was, and And more than that, she was the first Christian I met in my age bracket who, when she said she was a Christian, you knew that's exactly what she was. Her life actually backed up um, what she said her profession of her faith was. I didn't really know what it meant to be a Christian, but I knew enough Christians or enough kids in my age bracket who said that they were Christians, but nothing about their life. Actually looked what what I thought a Christian would be their life didn't back it up. They were Christian They were nominal Christians Christians in name only But Tria was different And it wasn't in a spectacular way She's not here so I can say that without (laughs) Hopefully offending her um It wasn't in a spectacular way. It was very ordinary Her yes meant yes and her no meant no which is still true to this day, um, give you an example. When we got married, she told me the very first week, "I will never mow the lawn." <laughs> Twenty-two and a half years later, she has never mowed the lawn. You got to like a woman who keeps her word. Um, and by the way, I didn't even know you can make claims like that the first week of a marriage. Or I would have made my own claims. We will never own a horse. I will never drive a minivan. But I didn't know. I just didn't know. But apparently she knew. She grew up in a happy Christian home, and I never did, so I didn't know the claims you could make. Um, (laughs) But anyways, uh, I met Tria, and subsequently, over the next year, I met her family. And over the next year, there were gospel conversations that took place over meals. And there were um, gospel conversations that just took place in life, just living life together. And on the night of my 18th birthday, I received a book written by a Christian author. And I went home that night and I read the book. And uh, in the back of the book, the author tells of Jesus' love and how in love He went to the cross to die for your sins. And then He rose again to give you new life. And when a person puts their Faith in Him, they can be forgiven of their sins and they can receive new life in His name. And it was at 2.38 in the morning that, when I read those words and that my heart was pierced. My eyes were open to the truth of the gospel and I received Christ as my Savior. And what's interesting about it is just about a year ago, um, we were on a little vacation and I grabbed the book before we left because I wanted to reread that section again. And it was interesting when I reread it, what the Lord used to actually reveal the truth of the gospel to me. And frankly, the writing was poor. It was rather ordinary and unimpressive. And the theology was quite shallow. I look back on it now. As someone, you know, I have a couple of degrees in theology. I look back, I love theology. I look back on it now and I'm like, huh, that was pretty shallow theology. And yet... I'm really thankful for the book, I'm really thankful for the author, it has a prominent spot in my bookshelf at home, um, because even though the writing was not impressive, and even though the theology was quite shallow, um, it actually revealed the truth of Christ's love for me. It was, a, it was the first time that I heard, had heard about Christ and it didn't seem abstract. Because I had grown up in a Catholic school. I went to Catholic school up to third grade. So even though I had heard about Christ, the message of the cross and of Christ's love embodied at the cross, it always seemed abstract, always seemed abstract to me. And yet the Spirit on the night of my 18th birthday opened my eyes to the truth of the gospel, revealed the depths of Christ's love for me. And something that up to that point had been very abstract, it became very personal to me. And as I said, I became a Christ follower that night. It's interesting how the Lord oftentimes uses that which is weak and unimpressive to accomplish His purposes. Is that not true? Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. Because Paul, in 1 Corinthians, has been telling the Christians in Corinth how the Lord oftentimes uses what appears to be foolish And weak to accomplish his purposes. This is exactly what um, Paul tells the Corinthians in chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. After he had heard that they were quarreling and they were breaking up into cliques, he says, don't you remember? Don't you remember the cross? Don't you remember the message of the cross? The world thinks the message of the cross is foolishness and weak. People will say, that's a nice little superstition that you Christians believe. And if it works for you, that's great. But it's not really real resurrection from the dead. Nobody really believes that. And Paul says, oh, yes, they do. The message of the cross, it's foolishness to the world, but Paul says it's actually the power and the wisdom of God. It's a new way of thinking about life in this age and life in the next age. He says, the world considers it foolishness. The world considers it unimpressive. The world considers it to be weak, and a crucified Messiah looks weak to the world. And yet, by the cross... God's actually accomplished way more than the best and the highest of human intelligence. And then Paul says in verses 26 through 31 that God's always delighted in in using the foolish to shame the wise. And he says, and oh, by the way, Corinthians, this leads us to you. (laughs) Because you weren't wise by human standards. But God took a hold of your life, Corinthians. And he birthed the Christian community in Corinth that despite all of its problems, and the church in Corinth had all sorts of problems, it was making an impact within the city. And then in verses 1 through 5 of Corinthians uh, of chapter 2, Paul says, Let me give you another example of how, of how God uses the weak and the unimpressive to accomplish his purposes. You want another example? Just look at Paul says to the Corinthians, just look at me and my preaching. Because Paul says, I myself was rather unimpressive. We talked about this uh, last time we gathered, that Paul was a rather unimpressive looking person. Nobody would confuse Paul with Ryan Reynolds. Or if you don't know who Ryan Reynolds is, that's okay. Uh, Or Brad Pitt. Nobody would confuse Paul with Brad Pitt. Historians tell us that Paul was bald-headed, bold-legged, quite stocky, a unibrow and a crooked nose. So nobody's gonna look at Paul and say, this is who I want to emulate, this is who I want to be like. So he was, all, he was unimpressive, and his preaching was rather unimpressive as well. He, he himself says, in chapter two, verse one, he says, I didn't come to you, my message and my, speak were not, my speech were not with lofty words of wisdom. So he says, I didn't come to you with high highfalutin words. He says, I came to you with fear and trembling. So he wasn't impressive. Now, make no mistake, however, that just because he was not impressive, it doesn't mean his, his uh, preaching lacked substance. You read anything that Paul's ever written, and you can tell there's a whole, all sorts of substance. But what it wasn't, it wasn't entertaining, which is what the Corinthians and Christians in America love more than substance. And Paul says, I'm not here to entertain you frankly, by the way, I'm not here to entertain you either. Um, The message of the gospel isn't about entertainment. He says, I'm not coming here to entertain you. Um, His preaching wasn't with the rhetorical style that the Corinthians loved and craved and the other orators of Paul's day used to impress people. Paul says, I purposely didn't do that. Now, think about that for a second. I purposely didn't do that. Well, why? Why wouldn't you? Purpose, why would you purposely not seek to impress people? Here's the reason why. A lot of times, people become more enamored with the preacher than the content of what the preacher's preaching about. And Paul says, "I don't. I don't want that." Paul says, "I don't want your. I don't want your faith to rest in my preaching ability, or in my star, in my style, my oratory skill, and, pers- uh, and persuasion." He purposely didn't want that because he didn't want them to be impressed by him. He wanted them to be impressed with Jesus. He says, I want your faith to rest not in my preaching, not in my wisdom. I want your, your faith to rest solely in the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that brings you out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his life. He says, this is not about the preacher. It's not about the church. This is about the Spirit of God at work in your life. Revealing, you, revealing to you the depths of Jesus' love for you. And it's a miracle, is what he says. And the Corinthians would say, well, but we still desire wisdom. The wisdom. We love wisdom. Sophia, we want to ha- have more wisdom. And what Paul's going to say in chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, all the way through 16, which is where we're going to be this morning. He's going to say, you want wisdom? Oh, why didn't you say so (laughs) because Christianity has a eternal wisdom and it's far deeper and far more lasting than anything the world offers but here's the caveat you don't find it on your own in fact you're unable to find it on your own you don't find it, which means you don't find it through scientific inquiry So you can't research your way to it. Boy, that bothers us. And you can't reason your your way to divine, divine wisdom. Unaided human reason is useless in discovering God's truth. Now think about that for a second, because if you can't discover divine wisdom through empiricism or through rationalism, what chance what chance does any human have to come to know God in his wisdom? How can any human, if you, can't, if you can't reason your way to God, and you can't research your way to God, how can any human come to know God in his wisdom? Well, only if he reveals it to us by way of his Spirit. Which again, now think about it, which again underscores Paul's point that they shouldn't be breaking up into cliques and fashions over human leaders. Because the fact that they're a Christian is entirely a supernatural work of God. And what Paul's gonna do in verses six through 16, he's gonna emphasize two things. And this forms the outline for this morning's message. So if you're a note taker, you wanna take note. Paul will say this in verses six through nine, he'll say that God's wisdom is not humanly discovered. God's wisdom is not humanly discovered. And then in verses 10 through 16, Paul will say that God's wisdom is divinely revealed. God's wisdom is divinely revealed. So verses six through nine, God's wisdom is not humanly discovered. And then in verses 10 through 16, Paul will say that God's wisdom is divinely revealed. So with that, let's jump into the text. And I gotta tell you, I cannot see the clock back there. So we're just gonna go. Uh, Buckle up. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot here. This is actually really dense material, um, so we're going to have to take it line by line because what Paul he packs so much in here that you got to just work at it line by line. So beginning in verse 6, here's what Paul says. He says, oh, you want wisdom, huh? Okay. Well, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. He says, you want wisdom? We speak wisdom. By the way, note the phrase we there. He switches from I to we. He's talking about all those, all the Christian preachers, all the Christians who tell others of the gospel. He says, we actually do impart, we do speak, if you're in the ESV, it says impart, if you're in the NIV, I think it says speak. He says, says, we do speak wisdom. We speak wisdom to the mature. And the mature there, it's not about age. Uh, because there are some really old people who are Christians who are not mature at all in, in the things of the Spirit. And there's some really young Christians who are quite mature in things of the Spirit. So it's not about age. It, mature simply means um, those who have been born again by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's all it means. Those who are genuine Christians, those who have life in uh, the present age, they have life in this age and in the age to come. Those are the mature those who are, have, been, um, have been born again. He says, we do speak wisdom to the mature. He speak, we do speak wisdom, but it's not a wisdom of this age, nor is it from the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So he says this wisdom that we, we impart, it isn't like the wisdom of the age. It's not temporal. It's not temporal. Uh, it's not the wisdom of the age. It's not here it, today, It's not here today, gone tomorrow. It's not fleeting like the rulers of this age who rise up and then are doomed to pass away. And he's talking about earthly leaders. And you may be thinking, there's some earthly leaders that I wouldn't mind if I could help cause them to pass away. Um, But Paul, what he's referring to here, no name calling, uh, what he's referring to there is specifically to those who led to the crucifixion of Christ. He says, these leaders, they they rose up, but they're doomed to pass away. He says, but we impart, verse seven, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory, Well, what's the secret and hidden wisdom of God? Here's what it is: It's not some esoteric knowledge um, that that breaks off into categories for those who are really mature and those who aren't. It's not that at all, because that would be distinctions within the body of Christ that'd be working against Paul's his whole argument up to this point. So, what's actually what's actually the secret and hidden wisdom of God? It's God's plan of redemption. That's what it is. It's God's plan of redemption which centers on the cross of Christ. And it actually solves humanity's greatest dilemma. How will sinful humanity be reconciled to a holy God? That's the hidden wisdom of God. How will sinful humanity be reconciled to a holy God? Well, only if, here's how, only if a holy God comes as a human Lives sinlessly among us, bears our burden, and dies as a sinner, and gives to anyone who comes to him in repentant faith his record of righteousness. This is, this is the hidden wisdom of God. And it remains, now think about it, because it remains veiled to those who are perishing in their unbelief and rebellion. Because humanity can't unravel the mystery themselves. They simply cannot unravel the mystery themselves because it doesn't look impressive. It doesn't look sophisticated enough. And God has hidden it from those who has a heart disposition that says, I will figure it out on my own. I don't need God. I will figure it out on my own. You know, in Matthew chapter 11, everybody loves to quote Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary labored or are heavy laden and burdened. Come to me and I will give you rest. Right before that, right before that, Jesus says, I praise you, Father. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things. And the things he's referring to is the message of Jesus Christ. The truth of who Jesus is. Uh, the, the truth of who Jesus is. He says, You've, I praise you, Father. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned. You've hidden them them from those who think they're just fine on their own and they'll work their way to God. They'll reason themselves to God. They'll research their way to God. They have an air of self-sufficiency that they don't need God. He says you've actually hidden these things from them, but you've revealed them to little children. To those who know that they're completely dependent. Those who recognize in and of themselves they're spiritually bankrupt. He says, you've revealed it. It's hidden from some, but it's revealed to others. And then he goes on, he says, yes, Father, for this, for this is what you were pleased to do. So the wisdom of the world looks for that which is impressive. It looks for that which is strong. It looks for that which is honorable. And it meets, through the wisdom of the cross, disarming weakness. That's what the wisdom, it meets at the cross, disarming, weakness, suffering, and the Lord of, of, the Lord of glory enduring the most dishonorable death. And therefore, when, he, when the world looks at the cross, it, it holds it in contempt. It dismisses the cross as utter foolishness. This wisdom, Paul says, second part of verse seven, look at it again. He says, this wisdom which God decreed before the ages, for our glory. You see the word decreed there? If, uh, if you're in the ESV, it's decreed. If you're in the NIV, it's the word determined. It's the same Greek word where we get the word predestined from. So God predestined before the foundations of the earth that he would be at works in and through the cross to save those who would believe the hidden message the message of the cross. He would be in and God would save those who would believe this message. This, this message that the world considers foolishness. It, it's, it, it was predestined by God. So, which means the cross was not plan B for God. All the way through God said, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to, humanity's going to rebel against me. I'm going to come in to humanity as, as myself, second person in the Trinity, and I'm going to do this. And anybody who will believe this Anybody who will put simple faith in me, they'll be saved. And notice that Paul gives you the full sweep of God's plan of redemption from eternity past all the way to our glorification. He gives you the full sweep of it. He says, This is going to happen. He says, Before the ages, this was planned. And then he says, All the way to your glorification when you're resurrected, (laughs) enjoying God's presence, enjoying your resurrected body in the presence of the Lord Himself. With no more sin, no more death, no more decay, no more dying, no more cancer, no more eyesight that's failing you. All of these things. He says, this is the full sweep. Is that not amazing? He says, this is God's plan. I can't tell if you guys are, are does, this, does this look good? Uh, this is amazing. This is amazing. He says, the full plan of God is right here. It's from ages past all the way to your glorification. And then he goes on, verse eight. He says, however, none of the rulers of this age, understood this. Nobody understood this. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He says, the best and the brightest. Think about it. The best and the brightest didn't recognize God's plan. They didn't recognize God's wisdom. The best government in human history up to that point, Rome. And the highest religion of, that, of the world at, at that time, Judaism the best and the highest, both conspired to put Jesus on the cross. How great is God's wisdom? How great is it? He knew humanity was going to follow its own wisdom. And by doing so, it would fulfill his plan. It would bring about his wisdom. It would bring about God's purposes as they crucified the Lord. And now what he does in verse 9 is he, he quotes two places out of Isaiah, um, Isaiah 64 and Isaiah 65. He kind of just free quotes them. And he says that humanity isn't able to discover this on its own. Look at what he says. Look at verse 9. He says, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of, uh, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for, for those who love him. You see what he's saying? A lot of people will read these verses and, and they'll misapply them. They think that he's talking about uh, heavenly wonders, but that's not what he's talking about at all. He's talking about how humanity, neither externally with our eyes and with our ears or internally with our hearts, so neither objectively nor subjectively can human, humanity discover God on, on, on their own. They are unable to do it. Humanity's two great resources, empiricism and rationalism, his observation and his reason, are equally useless in discovering divine truth. Well, again, if that's the situation, and Paul says it is, if that's the situation, how will humanity ever come to know God? How will they ever come to know his ways? Only if the Lord reveals it to them. Only if the Lord, by his Spirit, comes and shows them And in verses 10 through 16, Paul will say that God's divine wisdom is revealed by his spirit. Man cannot come to God on his own. And so God comes to man through his spirit. And look at how Paul says it. Look at verse 10. He says, these things God has revealed to us through the spirit. God has revealed to us through the Spirit. It's not that we grasp it. It's that the truth of the gospel grasps us. Is that not true, by the way? Do you remember when you first gave your life to Christ? How it grasped you? And you couldn't you were like, this is the most amazing message I've ever heard. It takes a hold of your life, does it not? That's what he's saying. He said, you're not, you're not able to grasp it in and of yourselves. It grasps you. The Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, is to take the glories of the gospel and make them utterly amazing in your sight. And it grasps you. It takes a hold of your life. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, it, this is what the Spirit does. So it's not that we discover the truth on our own, but that he, through his Spirit, actually showed it to us and made it glorious in our sight. Which means, again, there's no room for boasting on our part, right? One of the things that they always were doing, the Corinthians, they always boasted. He says, he says, why are you boasting? It's not your work. This is what God has done on your behalf through his spirit. He didn't. At one point, we didn't think the message of a crucified Savior was glorious. It was abstract. And then, through his spirit, he opened. So we can fully realize what was taking place in and through the cross. That God actually was demonstrating his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this process, um, where the Spirit opens up our eyes to the truth of the gospel, it's called illumination. And I know that's a theological term, but it's one you should know. And we don't shy away from theology here. Um, It's called illumination. And listen to what one theologian says on this topic. It's good. It's good for us to think through. The work of the Spirit in imparting this knowledge is called illumination. It is not a giving of a new revelation, but a work within us that enables us to grasp and to love the revelation that is there before us in the biblical text as heard and read and as explained by teachers and writers. Sin, in our mental and moral systems, clouds our minds and wills so that we miss and resist the force of Scripture. God seems... God seems to us remote to the point of unreality. Can anybody identify with that? God seems remote to us to the point of unreality. And in the face of God's truth, we are dull and apathetic. The Spirit, however, opens and unveils our minds and attunes our hearts so that we can finally grasp God's love for us in Christ. Isn't that great? That's what the Spirit does. So it's the Spirit's work to take the truth of the gospel and open our eyes to the reality of it, which means one of the things you need to remember about the Christian faith is that it is a revealed religion. The Christian faith is a revealed religion. Christianity is not a philosophy, right, where you take a a comparative religions course down at the local community college and you take a vote as a class to decide whether it's true or not. It's revealed. And this is done by the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on, second part of verse 10. He says, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So Paul says, let me illustrate this to you. He says, just as uh, nobody knows your inner thoughts quite like you do. By the way, that's a good thing that otherwise we'd have no relationships. Um, it's a good thing that nobody can read, like we don't have a text bubble above our head revealing all of our thoughts all the time. We would never be married. Um, so it's a good thing that, that only we know our thoughts. Um, even though in our most intimate relationships, like our marriages, we like to joke that we, can, we know what our, other spou- what our spouse is thinking, and we can actually oftentimes finish our spouse's sentences before they finish them. Is that not true? If you've been married for any length of time, you can pretty much know what your spouse is going to say about any topic, because she'll tell you before you even finish getting the words out of your mouth. Um, so we like to joke that, but nobody, even in your most intimate relationship, can fully know your thoughts. And that's that's Paul's point. He says, just as no one knows the inner thoughts of another, so only the Spirit of God knows the thoughts of God. And can make him known to us. And then he says, verse 12, he says, now we, and he's talking of, of, of Christians, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. He says when you're born again, the spirit regenerates you and gives you new life and he begins, the spirit begins to speak to you and teach you about the things of of God. He begins to reveal to you the truths of God's word. This is the message of of the cross and all of its implications and the cross has thousands of implications for every facet of our lives. And then Paul says, verse 13, he says, and we impart this, we, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. This is, a, uh, this is a difficult verse to translate, but what Paul's saying is that there's all sorts of spiritual realities, there's all sorts of uh, spiritual concepts that the Bible talks about. there's a ton of them, a ton of spiritual truths, tons of spiritual uh, realities that the Bible talks about. And they have to do with the Spirit of God and the Spirit's work in a person's life. And what the Holy Spirit does is he enables one person to help unlock spiritual truths to another person who's also received the Holy Spirit, who also has the Spirit in him. Does that make sense? That, that we interpret, we work together, we help each other think along the truth of the gospel to take, to take concepts, spiritual concepts, that are revealed in the scriptures and say, here's what the scriptures are saying and here's how it applies to your life. That happens all the time. There's all sorts of spiritual truth about the state of humanity, about the destiny of the human race, about who God is and what he's like, what he, what he has done in and through the cross, about the nature of sin and salvation, uh, who the Holy Spirit is. And what Paul's saying is, uh, a, a Christian who has the Spirit, who has the Spirit living inside of him, will be able to help another Christian understand these things, and it'll make sense to them. It'll resonate within them. Uh, this is part of what the, the, the Spirit's work in all of our lives. There's, there is a sense of legitimate uh, spiritual terminology that Christians will use to help other Christians understand spiritual things about the realities of the cross. And it's a perfectly legitimate thing to do so. And a person who's received the spirit, when, when these things are happening and they're, they're being taught, they're being instructed, they're, they're interpreting the scriptures with one another, when truth is unveiled before them, what will happen is it will resonate deep in their soul. And it'll bring them a sense of peace. Is that not true? Have you experienced that before? When things are taught to you, when you're working through Scripture with another person who also has the Spirit, two Christians uh, interpreting Scripture together, one helps another person understand something, when it's, when it's really good, um, it resonates in your soul and it brings you rest. You're like, ah, yeah, that's what it means. And that's, that's part of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, which means you can't be a Lone Ranger Christian. You cannot go live out in the woods by yourself. As much as this appeals to me, you cannot go live out in the woods by yourself and never never talk to another Christian because you will not grow at all in your discipleship to Christ. You need another Christian speaking into your life, challenging you in areas, uh, confronting you of of your sin, rebuking you of your sin, actually, calling you out of it to pursue godliness. And that doesn't happen on your own. And so Paul says this is part of the Spirit's work in our, in our life. And then what he's going to say is not everybody will receive spiritual truth. Not everybody will. For some, spiritual truth will bounce off of them It will just continue to bounce off of them like water on Teflon. Look at what he says, verse 14. He says the natural person, so the, the person who is not born again by the work of the Holy Spirit. So your everyday garden, pagan. (laughs) The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Paul says the natural person is not able to. Literally, they're not able to understand the things of God, the message of the gospel and all of its implications. Why? Well, because these things are spiritually discerned. They're spiritually understood, and the natural man is spiritually dead. And therefore he can't understand, it. he literally cannot understand them. They're completely incapable, without the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, of them being able to understand, not just understand, but grasp at a heart level uh, the glories of the gospel. Let me ask you, have you ever been communicating the gospel to somebody? And you can tell, they're looking at you like with a blank stare. And they look at you and they say, what? You believe this? I can't believe you believe this. Has that ever happened to you? This is the reason why. Because they're a natural person and the Spirit of God has not enlivened their heart to see the truth of the gospel. These things are foolishness to the natural person because he's not able to understand them. Now let me ask you, as a Christian, aren't you exceedingly thankful, therefore, that the Holy Spirit has worked in your life? You see what this passage should do in our lives? If we, when we really slow down and consider it, what it should make you do is say, oh my gosh, I was that. I was that before the night of my 18th birthday. Spiritually dead, no hope of understanding God and his ways at all. No hope of eternal life. No hope of, of any of the, the glories of the gospel. But only because the spirit of God opened up another person, only because the spirit of God opened up your eyes and your heart to the truth of the gospel are you able to understand these things. You see, when you slow down and consider this, this should flood you with immense joy. It should flood you with immense joy. And the other thing it should make you do is every time you think about another person who's not a Christian, man, it should drop you to your knees in prayer. You should pray, Father, please, let your Holy Spirit open their eyes, open their heart to the truth of the gospel. Every dang time you think about another person who's not a Christian, when this truth hits you, you should think to yourself, I've got to pray. I have to pray for that person, that the Holy Spirit would be at work in their lives, that the Holy Spirit would take the simple communication that we have that doesn't have to be impressive, doesn't have to be strong, it can be rather weak and feeble, but the Holy Spirit can use it to unlock their heart so that they can come to know the truth of the gospel. That's, that's immense responsibility for a Christian. But it's one we've got to take seriously. He goes on, verse 15. Paul says this He says, The spiritual person judges or examines all things, but he himself is to be judged or appraised by no one. Um, the spiritual person, verse 15, he's referring to normal, everyday Christians. And he says they can actually understand the things of God. Now, it doesn't mean that they can understand. Um, it doesn't mean there's not difficulty within the Scriptures. It doesn't mean they don't need human teachers. It doesn't mean they don't need academic study. It, um, it doesn't mean that studying the Scriptures is all of a sudden easy because it's, it's not. But what it means is a person who has the Spirit within them can actually know and evaluate and live out God's purposes for their life. They can actually know it because this. The Spirit's enlivening the the truth of the scripture to them. They can know it and they can understand it and they can live out God's purposes for their life and a natural person who's watching their life, they won't be able to fully understand it. And I'm sure you've had that experience as well. A natural person will watch watch your life and they'll say, I don't understand the reason you you make the decisions you do. A natural person will look at a spiritual person's life and they say, why do they live the way they do? Why do they help the people Why do they help people who can't help them? Why do they prioritize gathering on Sunday when all the other kids in the neighborhood are participating at the local soccer club or the local volleyball club or the local baseball club or softball club or whatever sport it is your kid plays that one of the biggest wrestling matches in my home and probably in yours too is, no, we gather on Sunday mornings. I don't care what every other kid in your school is doing. There's a priority that takes place and it doesn't make sense to a natural person. Why do they forgive people who have done the inexplicable? When our culture is about canceling, why do they willingly disadvantage themselves financially? I mean, these are all questions that a natural person, they look at these things and they're like, Christians make no sense to a natural person. They should make no sense to a natural person. And if a natural person looks at your life and they're completely in lockstep with you, well then, it might be time to ask yourself, am I walking by the Spirit? Am I actually living out the ways of Christ? And well, look at the time. Verse 16. (laughs) Paul says this. He closes up with this, this section. He says, for who has understood? He quotes Isaiah 40. He says, uh, who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? He says, but we, talking about Christians, but we have the mind of Christ. So he he quotes Isaiah 40, and he says, through the Spirit, Christians, everyday Christians, we actually have the mind of Christ. And again, this is what the Spirit does. He continually renews our mind. As we cooperate with the Holy Spirit, he continually renews our mind so that we're able to think and live like Jesus in our day-to-day life. As, again, as we cooperate with the Spirit, he enables us to walk, not in the wisdom of the world, but in the wisdom of the cross, in the wisdom of God. And the account ends there, and we'll do the same. Um, here's what, how I want to close. Paul tells us here that because we have the Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is given to every single Christian who has the Spirit. So how, here's the question, how can we tell if we're actually, if you have the mind of Christ, how can you tell if you're actually thinking along the lines of Jesus? How can you tell if the wisdom of the cross is shaping your thinking and thus your living? How can you tell if the wisdom of the cross is actually shaping your thinking and thus you're living in your day-to-day lives? Is it just through taking a theology exam? No, it's not, actually. Theology exams don't prove anything. Other than that, you're really good at memorizing stuff and then regurgitating it on a test. So it has nothing to do with that. Theology only matters when it benefits relationships. And that's what the Bible is all about, about relationships, first with God and then with one another. So how can you tell if the wisdom of the cross is actually shaping your life? Let me give you three ways. Here's the first one. You're more concerned relationally with meeting the needs of others than having your own needs met. Just got real quiet in here. How can you tell if the wisdom of the cross is shaping your thinking? Here's one of the ways. You're more concerned relationally with meeting the needs of others than having your own needs met. One of the ways you can tell if the cross, the cross of Christ is shaping your thinking is if in your relationships, so with your spouse, with your children, with your friends and with your co-workers, your family, if you're more concerned about meeting their needs than about having your needs met. And can you actually imagine, think about this, can you actually imagine in all of your relationships how they would dramatically improve if the paradigm, if, the, if Christ's life became the paradigm for our life, if we said the number one, my number one objective in this relationship is to make sure that their needs are being met, not my own, can you imagine what that would do in your marriage? Can you imagine what that would do in the lives of your children? Can you imagine what that would do in the life of the church? It would be amazing. Well. What would actually empower somebody to live this way? The cross. The cross of Christ. Because Jesus looked not to his own interests and needs, but to our needs instead. In Philippians chapter 2, um, we got time. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. I, I want you to see it. Philippians chapter 2. If you're in Corinthians, turn forward in your Bibles just a tish. Remember, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, is that right? General Electric Power Company. Yeah, Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians. Philippians chapter two. What would actually empower someone to live selflessly rather than living selfishly in their relationships? Only the cross. Because everything in this world Says it's all about number one. It's all about you. Get, get what you can get and get out. Uh, that's not the wisdom of the cross. That's not the way of Christ. That's not the paradigm for Christian living because Christ's life is the paradigm. Look at what Paul says. Philippians chapter 2, verse, uh, well, let's look at verse 1. Paul says this He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others, in your relationships with one another have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. How are you brought into union with Christ only because Jesus didn't look to his own interests. Only because he prioritized your needs above his needs. You see, to the degree that you realize you're in a relationship with Christ, is the only reason you're in a relationship with Christ is because he set aside his own interests and met your needs and interests instead is to the degree that you'll be willing and able to selflessly live with others even when it's costly. Don't you see? It's the only way. His life becomes the paradigm for our lives. So how can you tell if you actually are living out the mind of Christ? How can you tell if you're actually thinking along the lines of the gospel? You're more concerned in your relationships, especially your closest relationships. You're more concerned with meeting the needs of others than having your own needs met. Here's the second way. You're more concerned with the salvation of sinners than with simply judging them you're far more concerned with the salvation of sinners than simply judging them. And a lot of times what happens, even in the Christian church, is Christians will get frustrated with the world around them and the people around them. And they'll see the degradation and they'll, they'll just become upset by it. And they'll even go so far as to tell another person the gospel. They'll be so upset, they'll, they'll say, well, I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna fix this. I'm gonna go tell that person the gospel. But when it gets rebuffed, and that life continues to get worse, many Christians will adopt an attitude of, ah, to hell with it. And I gotta tell you, there is nothing more out of step with the gospel than that attitude, that looks at the world around them, the people around them, and and say, I've given them an opportunity, and they've rebuffed it, to hell with them. That is out of line with the gospel. Why? Well, because Jesus came, and he said, I came to seek and to save the lost. And when we we remembered, as his people, who have his mind, that this is his mission, that this is the mission of Christ given to us, it enables us to continue with our mission uh, despite the difficulty. So we have to be far more concerned with the salvation of sinners than with simply judging them. Listen to the great J.I. Packer. In his book on the work of the Holy Spirit, he says this. He says, Sin and Satan have so blinded fallen man that he cannot discern that the witness of Christ and the apostles is God's truth, nor see and grasp the realities of which it speaks, nor come in self-renouncing trust and poverty of spirit to Christ until the Holy Spirit has enlivened and enlightened him. Only those who are divinely taught and drawn come to Christ and abide in him. Saving faith is thus God's gift. If we ourselves have faith... That is only because God in his mercy opened our eyes and if we desire that others should come to faith, we need to pray that God will open their eyes and enliven their hearts for they will never believe otherwise any more than we ourselves would have done. You see, if if you're more concerned with the salvation of sinners than simply judging them, it'll continue. It will enable you to continue to pray for those who you know, who have rebuffed the gospel message, who has rebuffed the gospel. When you've given it to them, over and over and over again, and it continues to bounce off of them, like, like we said earlier, like Teflon to water, water to Teflon, it just continues to bounce off of them. What it'll enable you to do? It'll enable you to continue to pray for them. It'll enable you to say, you know, okay, Father, I'm praying that you're gonna open their eyes. It'll enable you to continue sharing the gospel message with them, trusting that the Spirit will unlock their heart will open their mind, open their, uh, their eyes to the truth of the gospel, just as he did for you when somebody brought to you the gospel message. And probably the first time you heard it, you probably rebuffed it. First time you heard it, you probably thought, this is crazy. This is foolishness. This is, this is simply God talk, and I don't want to hear it. But over time, they continued to came. They continued to share the gospel with you. They continued to pray. And in due season, due time, those spirits work in your life, he made it alive in you. And, and that's one of the ways you can tell. Am I, more, am I just upset with the world around me? And if I'm just upset about the world, I'm glad to hear that, Bob. <sighs> but if you are, are you more concerned with the salvation of sinners than simply judging them? Here's the last one. How can you tell if you're thinking along the lines of the gospel? You're more concerned with the wisdom of God in Christ than the wisdom of this world. You're more concerned with the wisdom of God in Christ than with the wisdom of the world. Now, I put this in here because a lot of you, uh, based upon the emails I get and the conversations I find myself in, you're concerned with the latest wisdom of this world, particularly AI and how it's going to shape our lives. How it's going to shape our lives going forward. You would not believe the amount of emails I've gotten about AI in the past several months. And I have been asked to read several books on the topic. Uh, and there are good books on it, by the way. Um, John Frame wrote an excellent book. If you want to, can I give you a book recommendation? John Frame, it, it, the, book, the name of the book is 2038. It's an excellent book. John Frame is an excellent theologian. It's a short little book. You can read it in a couple days. Uh, you just give yourself a little bit of time. It's an excellent book. But a lot of you are concerned about, about uh, artificial intelligence. And you're very, you, a lot of consternation about it. It comes up in our staff meetings. And so people are concerned about it. You're more concerned. Some people are more concerned with the wisdom of the world than the wisdom of God in Christ. And you can tell by where your mind drifts to. When you've got nothing else going on in your life, boy, that sounds good. When, you got, when you're just. In front of the TV, and you're just in one of those blank, dead stairs, where your mind drifts to. And a lot of people, I've noticed, their minds drift to AI. Let me, let me see. Uh, human intelligence coming together to use the new and the latest, greatest technology to see if they can reach Godlike status. I wonder if I've heard that before. Oh, I don't know, maybe Genesis chapter four and the Tower of Babel? You see, and what happened in that situation? God completely confused it. Look, are there really impressive things in the world that the world creates? Of course there are. Are they fascinating to watch develop? Yeah, you better believe it. And we're thankful for a good many of them, are we not? Of course we are. But also remember that today's discovery by humanity is nothing more than tomorrow's academic footnote. That's all it is. It's here today. It fascinates us. It lights up all the news organizations. And then in about a year or two, it's tomorrow's academic footnote. And they don't solve humanity's greatest problem. They do not solve humanity's greatest problem. Separation from God due to our sin. But the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ does. And this is why. This is why Paul keeps going back to the cross with the Corinthians. He says, you want to be impressed by something? You really want to be impressed by something? You need to be impressed by the wisdom of the cross. Look at the wisdom of God in Christ. That God planned before the ages began to become one of us. To die for us. So that when we trust him, he can forgive us. And then more than that, he actually gives us the mind of Christ so that we can know God and we can think and live like Christ in our midst. So in our day-to-day relationships with one another, we can actually live and treat people the way that Jesus lived and treated people. That's amazing. That is just amazing. And you guys, I can't tell if you're excited about it or not. That is amazing. And I wonder if you're here this morning if you're separated from God. I wonder if you're here this morning and you're separated from God. If so, that's why you're here, actually. It's because the Spirit drew you here so that you would come and see and sense to come to know Christ and his wisdom. And the way you come to know him is very simple. He made it simple. Again, it's weak and unimpressive things that God uses. He makes the message of the gospel very simple. You come to know him by simply admitting That in your words, your thoughts, your deeds, your actions, you've committed what the Bible calls sin. And if you look around, you're in a room full of sinners. They, They dress up nice. They look really good right now. But you're in a room full of sinners. Every one of us has admitted we're a sinner. And therefore, we were at one time just like you were separated from God. So you admit that. And then you come to see and sense that Christ died for you to forgive you of your sins and then he rose again to give you a new life and when you come to him, you simply come to him and repent in the faith and say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me of my sins. Take my life, let my life be yours. I want your words and your ways to shape my life going forward. That's it, that's all you have to do. And he'll take you, the spirit of God will be at work inside of you right now, giving you the mind of Christ so that you can actually live and think and love like Christ. What is there not to like? about that message. Nothing. So give your life to Christ. Let's pray. Won't you stand? We'll pray and then we'll sing. Father, we are so thankful that the message of the gospel is a simple message. And when we look at our lives in light of yours, we know, Father, that we don't measure up. We have done things, we have thought things, we have said things that we know we know intuitively we know we're wrong. What the Bible calls sin, Father. And we ask, by the work of Jesus Christ, that you would forgive us of those sins. That you would take our lives, Lord. That we would entrust ourselves into your grace and into your life. And that you would forgive us and make us one of your children. We thank you that that message is simple. And we pray right now if, if there's anybody within this room or within the sound of my voice that their heart is pumping. Father, this is one of the ways the Spirit is at work. We know, Father, you're speaking directly into hearts and minds, converting people, bringing forth regeneration. And we pray that those people would stick around and would pray with somebody. Let them know that they've been born again this morning by your grace. Father, for those of us who have been Christians a long time, we pray that when we leave here and we go back into the relationships that you've given to us, you've entrusted to our care, that the message of the gospel, the good news of grace, would be lived out well by us. And it would be uh, spoken of frequently by us, that we would, continually to ex- we would continually extend the message of God's grace to others in a grace-filled way. Not in anger, not in judgment, but extending your grace freely freely and as far as we can, Father. So we thank you, we love you. In Christ's name, amen.